This is Liz Townley, and you're listening to the Custer Gallatin National Forest Planning Podcast Series. I'm here in Bozeman, Montana with Virginia Kelly, the project manager or team lead for the Forest Plan Revision team. All right, so I want to start out with a couple of questions about just um, for people that aren't familiar with the Custer Gallatin. So how would you describe the Custer Gallatin National Forest? Well, we like to call the Custer Gallatin the most ecologically, economically, and socially diverse national forest in Region 1. This forest spreads from the Idaho-Montana border near West Yellowstone across southern Montana and into the northwestern part of South Dakota. So it has the highest peaks in Montana, the watersheds of the greater Yellowstone on the western half, and then over on the east, you're in the, you're in the prairies, and our, our units just rise out of the prairies and are like these islands of ponderosa pine. And when you say units, what are you referring to? So the island mountain ranges we call units. So there may be a number of discreetly named small mountain ranges, and we call those units. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. So what is your favorite thing about working on this national forest? Well, it's a very beautiful part of the country, and the wild lands are like nowhere else in the country. It's the most wild landscape in the lower 48 states. And to think of the full complement of native species are here, grizzly bears, lynx, wolves, wild bison, gorgeous scenery, and then I'd love going out to eastern Montana and South Dakota as well because it's such empty country and you're really out there by yourself. You can really get away from it all. Yeah. And how long have you worked on this forest? So I've worked on the forest about three years, but I've been here for 11 years. And I had a park service job and I was remotely stationed here. Oh, okay. All right. So had you ever worked for the forest service before? Forest Service, Park Service, Forest Service, Park Service. Back and forth, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Okay. So we're here today because your National Forest is going through a pretty big project. Um, So can you tell me a little bit about this project? So our forest plan is a comprehensive plan for the entire forest. It's our vision and also it's our guidance for future project decisions. So A plan sets the sideboards, if you will. It's the rules the Forest Service will have to follow for our future projects and our future decisions. The plan identifies certain areas that are suitable for certain uses or not suitable for those uses. So what it isn't, I think it's just as important to say what a forest plan isn't, and it doesn't authorize any particular projects. So at the end of this, we don't have a trail approved over here and a timber sale approved over there or a wildlife project. But what it does is it sets the framework for those projects going forward. It doesn't compel the Forest Service to do any project either. So it doesn't compel projects or actions, and it doesn't direct public use. It just directs the Forest Service. So once again, it's that framework for future Forest Service decisions. So can you explain why forest planning matters? Sure. So like I was saying, it's the foundation for all those future projects and future decisions that the forest is going to make. And our current plans were developed in the 1980s, and they've been amended many times over the past 30 years. So this is our first chance in 30 years to kind of start with a vision for the forest again. 
And that's really important now that we have two forests that have combined. So in 2014, the Custer National Forest and the Gallatin National Forest combined. They had two separate plans. So now we can bring that together into one plan and one vision for mm -hmm. this combined forest. Mm -hmm. And a lot's changed in 30 years. Population, the western part of the forest has just grown so much. But out on the eastern part of the forest, some of those counties have lost population. We have bigger fires. How people use the forest has changed. There's new recreation technology and new threats. Climate change, aquatic invasive species. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you think about the 1980s, um, so much has changed. So right. our national forests have too, right? right. right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so speaking of that, can you give me a brief kind of historical overview of forest planning? Sure. So the Forest Service has always done planning, timber planning or recreation planning. But when the National Forest Management Act was passed, it required the forest to do a comprehensive plan for the entire forest for the first time, a comprehensive forest-wide plan. And that's important so that we can understand how all the different pieces of the forest are going to work together. After a law is passed, an agency develops a rule called rulemaking uh, to implement the law. And the first planning rule was developed in 1982. And then the forests all developed plans in the mid to late 80s and early 90s. And of course, once anybody does a project for the first time, they can see how they might have done it better or how to improve it for the next time. So the Forest Service started working on how to improve that planning rule. And they had several iterations in 2000, 2002, 2005, 2008. And finally, in 2012, a new planning rule uh, was adopted, and we call that the 2012 rule. And what's different is a real focus on sustainability. So we need to provide for ecological sustainability and contribute to social and economic sustainability. So there's a lot of emphasis on ecological integrity, connectivity for wildlife, priority watersheds, as well as ecosystem services like wood products, clean water, recreation, and forage for livestock. Public engagement every step of the way. That's a change from the 80s. Can you tell me why now? Why is the Custer Gallatin doing this? Is there any kind of strategy or meaning behind the timing? Well, it's our turn. So the Forest Service can only afford to do so many of these at a time. And it's finally our turn. And it's a good timing for us because, as I mentioned, the, the two forests have combined. So it gives us the opportunity to create this comprehensive single plan for the forest and also to undertake it with the 2012 planning rule. Okay. All right. Let's talk a little bit about your specific project. So there's a plan and then there's an analysis of the plan. Can you talk about what is an EIS and what is a forest plan and what the relationship between those two are? Okay. So we developed a draft plan and we called it the proposed action. And that was our first stab, our first try at what this plan would look like. So we released that in January of 2018 and we took public comment on that. So what we heard from the public we used to actually create some different alternatives. So the second step was to create the alternatives. Then we need to analyze the effects of that proposed plan and all of the alternatives. So we will release both this plan with its alternatives and the analysis of the effects of that alternative. If we were to carry this plan out, what would be the effect on wildlife? What would be the effect on fisheries? What would be the effect on timber and grazing and so on? 
Okay. So um, I understand you have an upcoming comment period. So is this on the environmental impact statement of the plan? Is that what you're referencing? Yes. Okay. So when we release, we will release our draft plan and the draft environmental impact statement. Okay. And, you know, national forests belong to everyone and everyone can have a say in how they're managed. So this is your opportunity, the public's opportunity to comment. And they can comment on the draft plan, the standards and the guidelines. They can comment on the land allocations, recommended wilderness or backcountry areas. They can comment on the alternatives and they can comment on the draft analysis. So it's very helpful for us though, if people will give us their rationale, tell us why. Uh, if people comment on a specific alternative, they may say, I like alternative X. Well, there's a lot going on in every alternative, so please tell us why. And if it's just one particular thing you like in that alternative, well, please you know, point that out. I like this alternative because it's the only one that does something. Okay, great. So you mentioned that these national forests belong to everyone, right? And I understand that just by um, location, you might get a little bit more participation from from local or regional folks. So I, I was just thinking about this project on the way over and I was thinking about how my brother lives in Tennessee, but he loves to come out to the Custer Gallatin. Um, he comes out, you know, maybe once every couple of years to go fishing. So he doesn't have that really intimate knowledge about this national forest, just like somebody maybe in Miami wouldn't have or, you know, Southern California. But how might they provide a comment that could still be useful for what you're you're trying to do here? Again, have a good look at the the plan, at the alternatives, and that analysis. And please make your comment specific to our plan mm -hmm. and our forest. And I can get a little bit into um, a substantive comment. And that's important because as we go further into our planning process, we do get more formal. So we use the comments we get in the comment period. We can refine the plan, we can refine the alternatives, we can refine our analysis. Then we're gonna develop the final environmental impact statement and a draft decision. Then we have an objection period. So people can look at that draft decision and give us an objection to it but only if they have already commented in one of our formal, formal comment periods. And we had the first formal comment period in January 2018 with the proposed action. And our second and final formal comment period will be with the draft environmental impact statement. So a person has to comment in writing and with their name in a formal comment period if you wanna be able to make an objection. It also has to be a substantive comment, which is a comment that's within the scope of the proposal, is specific to the proposal, and has a direct relationship to the proposal, including supporting reasons for us to consider. Mm -hmm. So that's where, again, it's important to have those specific comments related to this plan and this EIS, mm -hmm. to have the ability to, to, to have an objection. Mm -hmm. All right, so I know that there's a lot of organizations out there that write, you know, one letter, then people have people sign up kind of petition style, right? Um, so that the forest will get, you know, a thousand or a hundred thousand 
comments um, from, you know, with the same basic idea. And we usually refer to those as like form letters, right? So um, can you speak to this a little bit? How are those looked at or considered? Certainly. So when we look at comments, we're looking at the points that are made. So a thousand people can write a letter and make the same point, and we count that as one point. On the other hand, we could have only one person make a particular point, and we need to consider that point. So it's the points that are raised, not the number of people who make the same point when we look at analyzing all of the comments. So it's not voting, I guess you could say. So I know that from working in this field um, that a lot of people don't show up and engage in these type of processes because they feel like they aren't heard or in the past they haven't been heard. Mm-hmm. Um, so what have you done differently this time around to listen to people and to show that their voice does matter? I would hope people would see, maybe not their exact comment, but the themes of what they've told us represented in our proposed action or in our range of alternatives. You know, we do have to con- consolidate things and address a point, maybe not exactly the way the person conveyed it to us, but we would hope that they would see that the, the spirit of their comment is, is reflected in what we've done. Okay. Can you outline again what the timeline is for formal um, comment period for folks? So as they're listening to these next few episodes um, from different resource specialists, they can keep in mind what exactly is being asked of them and what the timeframes are. So once we release the draft EIS, we will have detailed instructions on the length of the time, the comment period, where to comment, how to comment, links to our website, et cetera. It'll be in 90 days. Please use our online commenting system. If people would, that, the directions to use that, that's CARA, C-A-R-A. And we request that because it, it's actually less processing time for us if people enter their comments directly into the commenting system. But a 90-day public comment period, please make your comments in the time frame um, if you want to have standing for objections. Tune in to the next nine episodes to find out more about a particular resource area you might be interested in. The resource title, like Wildlife, fire, or ecology will be listed in the episode title so that you can pick and choose or listen to all eight if you want a comprehensive understanding. These environmental impact statements and forest plans can be huge, like 500 pages huge, and it's not exactly the easiest information to read. So these episodes condense this information and provide real examples of what kind of comments are useful relative to each resource. The 90-day comment period that Virginia referenced started on March 1st and ends on June 6th, 2019. Head over to www.fs.usda.gov backslash Custer Gallatin, and click on the front and center forest plan revision header. As always, thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode where Rebecca Rash dives deep into the socioeconomics of forest planning.